This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Good afternoon, everybody. Today, it is October 14th. We once again have drawing capital on. And as I should mention, all opinions expressed by Sean Vanderwall and Sajir Joshi in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are solely their own opinions. The podcast is not an offer nor recommendation to buy or sell securities of any investment fund, nor a solicitation of offers to buy any such securities. An investment in any strategy, including strategies described herein, involves a degree of risk. Clients of Drawing Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. To learn more about Drawing Capital's research and opinions, you can sign up for Drawing Capital's free weekly newsletter at drawingcapital.substack.com. So yeah, thanks for joining everybody. I'm really looking forward to today. Uh, To start with, we'd like to really talk about what market trends we should be looking at in the fourth quarter of 2021. Uh, additionally, can you discuss your new business unit, DC Ventures, and what lessons, if any, so far, uh, investing in startups and private companies is telling you about the current startup climate in the United States? Yeah, so I think just starting out here, at the macro level, something we've discussed previously was rising treasury yields and their impact on stock valuations and discounted cash flow models, especially in high-growth stocks. I mean, we saw the 10-year treasury uh, peak and yield at the end of March at roughly 1.7%, then bottom at the end of August at roughly 1.1%. Now we're creeping back up at at 1.5%. So my view is that the primary theme for the foreseeable future will continue to be rates, QE tapering, and inflation that we've been seeing throughout the year. I think just a continuation of that. I'm sure you saw Al Bustick, the president at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, commented that Inflation is actually broadening. It's not appropriate to refer refer to as transitory anymore, which policymakers weren't necessarily expecting. But the recent Fed minutes also stated that they will start tapering in mid-November or mid-December. But it's reducing the buying of $120 billion in assets per month to 105. So still absolutely in this long-term QE cycle, buying a huge amount of assets and liquidity being injected into the system. That being the case. And there'll be increasing concerns and and likely continued volatility in equity markets just due to a lot of the same worries around rates rising sooner or faster than expected or, you know, QE tightening happening at some point at a a more rapid pace. So because of this low rate environment, there's just been significant borrowing across asset classes and an increase in rates in, in the future whenever that time might come would obviously result in you know, a good degree of deleveraging across the board. So I think that's kind of the ticker that everyone's waiting for. We are certainly biased in in market trends and, you know, sectors that we focus on. We're really investing in high growth companies. The better portion of those are in cloud software businesses. But regardless, we are investing for the long term and focused on the segments of the market that can really sustain revenue growth rates of 50% or higher over the next three to five years. So despite a rapid digital acceleration due to COVID, many of these companies will still experience massive secular tailwinds in the years to come. And also only about 2% of cloud software businesses are actually public. So there's a huge opportunity in private markets as well. And I suppose a good segue into the next part of your question there. But 
we launched DC Ventures, uh, which is really a venture platform, we'll call it a few months back. And we're all very excited about it. It just allows investors, both individuals and institutions, to get access to really high quality companies on a deal by deal basis. So these range from early stage Series A or Series B all the way through pre-IPO companies, though there's really been a, more of an emphasis recently on that pre-IPO space. Historically, it's just been an incredible asset class that, that can provide the opportunity for outsized returns. There's just not a great way for a broader population of people to access it. It's you know, usually between personal networks or of coworkers or you know, friends family, things like that. And the, and the buy-in can be quite high. So that's kind of the problem that we're tackling there. But I mean, these are you know companies that we've been investing over for the last few years, just personally, and friends, coworkers, and clients all asking how they could participate with us. So we said, you know what, let's just create a more formal, scalable way of doing this. So just, I guess, a firsthand example, this didn't actually happen for the record, but just to give you an example here, Grant, you decide, you know, I want to allocate 15% of the portfolio to pre-IPO stock. So sign up for the platform. When an offering is available, you receive all the details and due diligence from us, and you are able to decide whether you'd like to participate or not and in what amount. So not really like a traditional venture fund where you just give someone X amount of dollars and on a discretionary basis, they go out and invest that in, in whatever their uh, you know particular vertical or, or stage of, of company is. So really just trying to give more transparency and flexibility back to the investor community on the private side. It makes a lot of sense, Sean. And we had previously spoke about the rise of SPACs and you just talked about pre-IPO companies, a, a big cash out or, or payday for the investors in these early stage companies is when the companies actually go public. You know, during the third quarter of this year, we saw 94 United States initial public offerings raising about 27 billion. That makes it the largest Q3 period, really number of deals since 2000. Um, what's your take on the current IPO market and how that will perform in the fourth quarter? And is there any particular IPOs that you're currently tracking? Yeah, so again, in public markets, I think, everything will be addressed with this backdrop of rates and inflation. If the Fed comments that rates could potentially be rising sooner than expected, or the tapering of QE will happen at this accelerated rate again, which, I mean, based on, you know, recent information seems unlikely, but if that was the case, the market will likely favor companies uh, going public that have stronger prof profitability, or at least a more clear uh, and immediate path to profitability there versus those that have been burning significant amounts of cash. If we stay in a similar scenario to the one that we've been in today or you know, some of the worries about yields rising or, or further alleviated, then we could be back in a scenario where you know, these really high growth IPOs, even if not profitable or favored. Um, on the SPAC side of the market that you mentioned, and um, there's just been, since our last discussion, you know, significant amount of capital raised over the last year, year and a half. Many of the SPACs have not acquired a target just yet. So there's large amounts of bidding occurring for high quality companies, which are few in number. And the typical window to keep in mind here for SPACs is they have to close on a target company basically within 24 months. And the clock is really ticking for a lot of those sponsors. Amongst hedge fund managers, a high level of alpha has been generated actually by shorting companies recently and, and SPACs bringing companies public that 
really have no business being public companies are going to be a major target here. So SPAC sponsors really have two options. They can give cash and return it back to investors. I've already heard, heard of this, you know, happening now, uh, people just kind of giving up, returning cash to investors, or they can continue to, I don't want to say scramble, but, but search for things and may uh, end up with an acquisition target that may be lower quality than they originally anticipated. There was a very strong euphoria in the SPAC market last year, obviously, and while it's since subsided, there are still very high quality SPAC sponsors participating. I'm sure they'll have successful outcomes. It's just not going to be this crazy frenzy uh, like it was last year, I would say. As far as companies that we're tracking, uh, there are certainly some exciting ones. You know, probably some you've heard of already. Been grabbing major headlines just because, as you alluded to, in private markets, I mean, valuations being assigned are massive. Record number of unicorns being birthed this year, and, and funding rounds are just just off the charts. But you know, a few of those, uh, just to name them, Toast. We were actually investors before the IPO there. So they went public last month. Uh, shares are obviously still in a six-month lockup period, but obviously watching that one closely. Uh, Databricks, who's the data warehouse or lake house and a, a key competitor to Snowflake, will be uh, absolutely something of interest. Stripe, the payments giant, who was founded by the Collison brothers. Instacart, if you've used them, especially in the time of COVID, the grocery delivery service. Uh, and then Rivian, Automotive, which is an EV company, um, just filed their S1 recently, a couple of weeks ago. It'll certainly be interesting, especially because they have no revenue. So even at like a seed stage, I've never put money in a company without revenue. So just curious to see how well that's received by investors in public markets and basically an entirely writing on a, a contract with Amazon to buy, you know, 100,000 uh, plus trucks for, for transportation purposes there. Like to uh, so what's been in the news quite a bit is obviously Facebook. I mean, on October fourth, we saw Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp all experience outages. Uh, we saw the day prior, um, Francis, who was a she was a product manager on the Civic Misinformation Team. Uh, she came out uh, as a whistleblower on 60 Minutes, and she's discussed the misaligned incentives Facebook has over the public good. Uh, she also addressed Congress. Um, uh, not the first time, you know, they've they've been in front of Congress. What what does this all mean for Facebook stock and the company as a whole? And do you find any of the revelations shocking or is it all pretty expected? You know, I'm not super surprised to hear this. I think it's well documented at this point that Facebook has reinforced mental health, body image issues, et cetera, especially for teenage girls in particular. But that being said, I think it really ought to be separated into three different buckets. So bucket one is policy and governance. Two is societal impact. And then three is, is financial. But from a, a policy and governance standpoint, regulators need to come together to define clear lines around certain types of products that need to be approved prior to launch, how the information gets used, provide, you know, I think just a more clear operating framework because right now there's just a big margin for interpretation. Um, we talked about this last time, but Section 230 is a big one with regards to being a publisher versus a platform. But I, I think this gray area just re leaves a lot of room. It also leaves a lot of room for regulatory arbitrage. But I think the real question here is the societal impact versus financial benefit. And I do think that the harsh reality is that 
the potentially negative societal impact we've seen hasn't really materially affected Facebook's earning power at all. So while you could see stock price fluctuations now and then because of some of this information that comes to light around the societal effects, Facebook can likely continue to operate at a similar rate of growth and innovation as they have been uh, and continue to be a powerhouse as, as one of those major bank companies. But the biggest potential detractor and one that we've seen, you know, we've seen this happen to other companies in the Valley is, you know, the issue of talent retention. So if something surfaced that resulted in a material amount of their talent leaving, that would be a real implication um, for financial participants uh, and shareholders as well, because talent is really everything for these companies and provides their competitive advantage. It's the ability to innovate, ship products quickly, have more sophisticated algorithms than competitors, and ultimately sustain a leading market share here. And if we think about regulation, I'm going to switch gears here, Anya. Uh, let's talk about cryptocurrency a little bit here, uh, especially because I know that you guys were some of the earliest crypto investors in 2005. Just kidding. Uh, I wish we all were. You guys were getting, you were the guys getting pizza with it, right? Yeah, exactly. You were the, the, the trendsetters. Um, when you first said toast, I uh, was thinking you were talking about a breakfast supply company there. Um, but if we think about the cryptocurrency, it's it's been a hot topic over the last couple months, even years now. Um, we've seen China recently crack down uh, on the mining of, of these companies. We're even seeing El Salvador really becoming the first country to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tenure. You've seen the United States trying to figure out what how they are going to regulate uh, cryptocurrencies. What are your guys' thoughts on the current crypto space and what are the recent developments that we should be looking at in terms of regulation and, and where crypto may be headed? With respect to the recent developments in China, I mean, this is huge for the Bitcoin space and other parts of the world. China basically created uh, or, or shut down, you know, I mean, that four of the largest Bitcoin mining operations were in China. And so they're handing all of the mining share to everyone else. And just to kind of put some numbers behind this, we look at something called hash rate, which is the measuring unit of the processing power of the Bitcoin network globally. So of this hash rate, the United States' share doubled from just under 17% before China announced this to over 35% now. Russia is up to 11%, 6.8%. Kazakhstan went from just over 8% to over 18 And And prior to the, the mining ban in China, their hash rate share was around 38%. But being still, I mean, a longer term trend, our outlook on Bitcoin is still largely unchanged. I mean, this is one of those things where anything that is decentralized is going to draw regulatory attention because that's typically based around centralized systems. So that will be an ever present theme, I think. But we're very positive about the use cases and benefits this is likely to have, especially for third world countries with and with monetary basement escalating i think it's just a major oversight to not have it as a part of of any portfolio and you know whatever degree someone is willing to accept in terms of risk but several innovative payment companies are either building a way or have have already built a way to accept bitcoin as a payment some very noteworthy companies are holding bitcoin as a part of their balance sheet i think el salvador is probably one of many countries to start accepting bitcoin as a reserve currency in the future 
also in private markets, if we look at where dollars are going to, blockchain and, and crypto are massive areas of interest, implying that these solutions and platforms will start to experience more widespread use in the next few years if they continue with this current rate of growth. Adoption is clearly happening uh, in infrastructure uh, for storage, security, frictionless transfer and trading are all developing rapidly. And I think this is tied to, you didn't directly ask about this, but I think in another important one to mention and just an ed development that I'm very excited about here um, with respect to blockchain is uh, Web3 is, again, based around blockchain. And just for listeners that aren't um, Web was next is on the web during a period of like 1991 to 2004. Web2 is mostly where we're at today and is the social web. But with Web2, regularly data breaches, you hear about them all the time. You have no control over, over your data, how it's stored around, again, centralized servers, which are subject to intervention of various types. But now with Web3, um, there's a few key differences. Again, primary one being decentralization, and it shares that commonality with, with Bitcoin. But the benefits of rebuilding the web infrastructure from the ground up are that it's verifiable, trustless, self-governing, permissionless, and has native built-in payments. And this is really accomplished by either building it directly on blockchain, a network of peer-to-peer -peer nodes or servers, or a combination of the two. Um, but I think that is a huge development. And again, one that we're seeing masses of capital flow into uh, in, in a related space that will become just ever-present in the next few years here. And when we kind of look up and follow up on Chinese intervention, we saw the MSCI China index is down roughly 20% this year. Uh, and that's compared to a fairly stellar year for the S&P 500. There's no shortage of analysts calling this a buy signal for Chinese equities, whereas others are seeing it as an increased sell sign. Um, what's your take on Chinese equities? And if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is this one's for you, Sajir. Yeah, it's a great question. And thanks again for the opportunity and invitation to the podcast. I do believe that the recent valuation reset presents an incredibly compelling opportunity set uh, at really attractive prices, actually, in many Chinese equities, particularly in tech-enabled e-commerce uh, and their digital economy. And so as a kind of a key generalized takeaway is that when popular opinion deviates from business reality, this presents an investment opportunity. Now, nonetheless, uh, despite the uh, optimistic tone there, uh, nonetheless, there are three notable acknowledgements to consider. The first one, in my view, is that Chinese companies that demonstrate corporate alignment with China's political ambitions and, and broader goals are much more likely to face less deprecatory regulatory policy. So there needs to be a greater alignment there in order for growth. Otherwise, there's just going to be more regulatory scrutiny uh, in a variety of different ways there. The second notable acknowledgement, in my view, is that this this is actually what's happening there is happening in other, uh, other countries as well. And so similar to several other countries is that there is a desire for a monopoly for power and governments desire a monopoly of policymaking power and a rule of law over their citizens. And so when companies threaten or disrupt this monopoly, they may be in the crosshairs of antitrust or other regulatory scrutiny from government regulators. 
And we're actually seeing this across many countries and many parts of society here today. So for example, the CEOs of big tech companies in both America and China actually control more economic resources today than the presidents and prime ministers of several smaller countries. And so we can really see the size, scale, and scope uh, of how massive some of these organizations are here today. And then a second example, um, and something that uh, Sean alluded to earlier, is that the rise of Bitcoin and DeFi and all of these other protocols are enormous wealth creation engines that have largely occurred outside of, uh, of the traditional banking sector. And so there's going to be ever more regulation uh, or at least policymaking scrutiny uh, we'll see in, in the coming uh, months and years ahead of how this actually shapes out into actual written policy, but there's going to be more and more of a discussion there. And a third notable acknowledgement that I'd like to mention is that the VIE or variable interest entity structure is already under additional spotlight. And I guess double clicking on VIEs, they essentially became used as a workaround for Chinese companies to fundraise capital from foreign investors without giving up equity ownership. And since several Chinese industries have actual bans on foreign ownership, the VIE structure was essentially a, a pseudo workaround there. Uh, and the implications with this recent Chinese regulatory policy changes is that many investors share the viewpoint that large Chinese companies today are indirectly state-owned enterprises, either directly uh, in one form or the other, or implicitly through through other means. And so going forward, I think the a, a new reality could be that new Chinese IPOs and Chinese VIE entities may actually relist onto Hong Kong or other stock exchanges there. One issue that really provides a lot of uh, fundamental nerves right now is, is when we're looking at the debt ceiling. Uh, it's been a particularly contentious issue. Still, even with the stopgap funding, I think it has the potential of bringing the country to default. Uh, there's been a lot of crazy gimmicks um, that are possible to get around it, such as minting a $1 trillion platinum coin. Um, when you look at that, it just reminds me of like the legend of Zelda going to the Deku tree and talking to the spirit elders. Uh, so it's you know <laughs> more fantasy than what seems to be actually policy. I guess my take is the tool effectively just blocks spending for a budget uh, that the Congress has already agreed to. And at least my take is there doesn't seem to be much of a tangible upside in controlling debt to GDP ratios, and it really only has big downsides. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, do you disagree or, or do you think it might even be time to ax the debt ceiling for good? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question here with so many uh, different policy implications. Uh, I think what we see here is that with the debt ceiling situation is what we see is, is really a twofold scenario. I think first off, the rhetoric and political theater that are going on is really getting in the way of progress. And second, increasing or eliminating the debt ceiling is providing a license for Congress to spend more money. Now, that being said, from an asymmetric risk reward perspective, which we certainly look at in the investment business, increasing or eliminating the debt ceiling is actually a far better outcome than defaulting on the debt if those are the really the only two or three options there. And so obviously a default or restructuring event is not in the country's best interest, and that would really create cascading implications and historically, the debt ceiling situation eventually gets resolved. So from my perspective, I think it's more of a question of timing the parameters and the political trade-offs involved in order to reach an agreement there. 
it would be pretty catastrophic to see the United States uh, start defaulting on uh, on some of their loans. One of the other things that we've really seen recently uh, is inflation. So it's been the talk of the town, no matter whether you go out to dinner, whatever podcast you're listening to, news article, inflation is here because Americans are paying more for dinner, fuel prices are up, housing prices are up. We even saw uh, Social Security announced that they were going to also increase their benefits by 5.9% in 2022. So it seems like an inflation is here. We've heard that the Fed may have to move faster. This may be a, a problematic economic environment, really stagflation where we have weak economic growth and high inflation. We saw this in periods in the 1970s. Are you worried that we may be entering another period like that with stagflations, or do you think inflationary levels uh, will be uh, be able to be tamed by the, the Fed? I do believe that this current economic environment is resembled by a combination of both high inflationary expectations and low interest rates. And so within consumer prices, there's a distribution of outcomes and sectors such as education, healthcare, housing, and as you mentioned, even restaurant menu prices have persistent inflation rates that are higher than the consumer price index inflation rate over time. And yet on the other hand, we also see that innovative technology and dematerialization are inherently deflationary forces because they enable greater productivity output from less large materials. And so I guess double clicking further on the definition of inflation uh, and then the imp implications both investment wise as well as policy wise is that the importance of understanding inflation is necessary to maintain and even grow one's purchasing power over time. So inflation represents a decrease in purchasing power, which implies that more U.S. dollars are needed to purchase the same amount of products or services. And in this high inflation yet low yield environment, I actually propose, and I've done a lot of work with this with uh, both our, our co-managing partners here, uh, Sean and Jugal, we really propose five possible ideas of potentially increasing portfolio returns in this high inflation yet low yield environment in an effort to continue seeking higher and positive inflation adjusted returns. And if I may, I'll just quickly mention the, these five possible ideas of, of doing so. The first method is really involves actively being involved in adding material value to an investment. And so in the venture capital community for startups, this is actually very common and important. And so I guess said differently there is that a key question is how can the venture capitalists help with either technical expertise, business model strategy, recruiting talent, or making other intros for future financing rounds? So that would be first method is being actively involved in adding material value. The second method involves using financial leverage to amplify positive returns on equity. Although, as many people are aware, financial leverage in investing does come with additional specific risks involved. The third method, in my view, involves adding risk premiums to a portfolio via increasing allocations to potentially high returning assets and asset classes. So notably, simply adding risk to a portfolio doesn't automatically translate to higher returns. So really, I, I think in our view, investors need to be smart about which position to include and also exclude in their portfolio. The fourth method of improving returns in this high inflation yet low yield environment is looking at scarce assets and digital assets. And also in this specific instance, in the, in the past several months, we've seen assets that are experiencing supply demand shocks. So often these assets have little correlation with traditional financial markets and provide an opportunistic method of adding exposure and potential complexity to a portfolio in search for returns. The fifth method here involves finding a differentiated thesis that focuses on exponential technologies 
with the hyper growth potential to have network effects on a platform. And so if a company can transform an idea into a product and then transform a suite of products into a platform, then there can be sizable investment gains and accumulating business advantages to the company. So in public equities, there's actually a structural inefficiency in investing in innovative technologies and high growth mega themes. And then this inefficiency then therefore creates a massive opportunity in our view for investors to generate returns. And notably, this inefficiency is perpetually present and cannot be easily arbitraged away. So at Drawing Capital, we very much believe that actively seeking and investing in tech-enabled companies with transformative and innovative technologies can provide immense investment opportunities in the years to come. And among many companies and industries, we actually actively look at cloud software businesses that are growing at 50% or more per year. So I guess to, to answer your, your uh, good question, uh, on a broader lens, we see inflation certainly has an impact. In many areas, it is not transitory. Depending on how things are measured, there's so many different ways of also measuring inflation. I think CPI is just one of several. And from an investment perspective, I think this framework of these five methods that I mentioned, I think can be really, really helpful in providing a nice recurring way of generating uh, potential future returns that, that are actually quite high and, and really achieve the investor goal in mind. Well, thanks for your time, gentlemen. That was, that was fantastic. Um, and to all our listeners, uh, thanks for all your likes and subscribes. Uh, we'll be dropping this here this coming week. Um, thanks again, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.